we had an awesome time in Italy, and it was it was a very different type of vacation. I'm used to having a vacation. First, when my wife and I were married for like the first 10 or 15, probably 15 years, all of our vacations were visiting relatives. You know what that's like when you first get married? Vacations are all about visiting relatives, and eventually we just realized, wow, you know what? Um, We've never really had a vacation where we just enjoyed it. And so we went to the beach, and we, we had some of those times together. And this past uh, week was not a, a week to be able to relax necessarily. But I tell you what, it was awesome to be able to see the history uh, that's, that's in Italy. And I'm going to be showing you some pictures a little bit later on. Not, not home videos, trust me. But I, wanna sh- I have a book that I purchased there um, that's going to play into the, the theme of the sermon today. And I'm going to show you a, a, a few of those. But I, I was just so impressed with the history and the history that's there. But I'm going to be mentioning later just some things as you go through Italy. It's, it's really the, the cradle of Christianity in many respects in the Mediterranean area. But there, there are some things that as, as we began to walk through these ruins and walk through the basilicas, there was just some, uh, there were some stories that you could see paintings of and that we heard from our guide that that really disturbed us as well, uh, and I'm going to be talking about some of those. Um, this past Wednesday, I wrapped up our series on walking with dinosaurs, rather strange phrase, because I don't know about you, when I grew up, that phrase, walking with dinosaurs, is, uh, is followed by a joke, you know? When was the last time, yeah, the last time I did that, I fell off my dinosaur kind of thing. And it, because the conclusion is, oh my goodness, we all know dinosaurs uh, were extinct 65 million years ago, uh, but we've been looking at some uh, facts that would seem to contradict that. And actually, as we look into the Word of God, and that's what we did first, we looked at the Word and then science, and we discovered that God's Word really is truly clear on this issue that the earth is young. Now, I realize Christianity is divided over this, but I can tell you what, there's not one single Christian who read the Bible first and said, oh my goodness, the earth really is millions of years old. No, they looked at science first, and they say science says, and because science says, and that's, that is a code for scientists say, we learned, um, and their interpretations, uh, because of that and now their perspective of science, they come to the word and they do a bunch of different things to make the word say what they want it to say. Now, I, I'm being kind of firm here because we realize that the implications of old earth creationism is when you look at the geologic column, apparently it's hundreds of millions of years old, we're told, that we find cancer in bones hundreds of millions of years before Adam apparently appeared on the earth and before sin ever entered in the world, which would lead us to believe very conclusively that God created cancer and then said on the sixth day it is very good. There are other implications of believing that the earth is millions of years old not the least of which I've already mentioned, we take science and we use science to interpret the scriptures. Now, the first day that we got together, and by the way, you you probably remember we we divided each meeting together together up into two different sections, something talking about dinosaurs, because that's real, dinosaurs, the talk about dinosaurs really reveals what our paradigm and what our worldview is and how we are now to interpret and understand the age of the earth and its implications, Okay. And so we, we talked about the historical chrono, uh, chronologing of uh, accounts people over the last several centuries, millennia even, 
seeing dinosaurs. They recorded them. And these are, many of them, secular historians, secular like Pliny the Elder. He's a secular botanist. Uh, we learn much of the first century of our world because of what he wrote. He wrote several volumes, and he talks about dinosaurs and seeing them. He didn't just see their bones and such. No, he saw flying reptiles, and he describes them and how prevalent they were. He talks about them uh, living in, in uh, frankincense trees because of the aroma of those trees, and, and he observed them, and yet we step back and say, no, 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 that's impossible. He was making it up. Uh, we looked at a number of different sources to, to talk about this, not just Beowulf, all right? We also looked at artwork from numerous cultures, and we can tend to maybe write off, you know, well, we found this in an in Indian culture, and maybe they were highly influenced by superstition, but we find this in Bishop Bell's tomb, and we saw uh, long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs in, in his... Uh, in his sepulcher. Um, it, 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 today, it's in the Carlisle Cathedral. Uh, we looked also in the third week, we looked at what the Bible had to say concerning two creatures called Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, many people, even well-meaning Christians, say, well, those are just mythological creatures. Actually, this morning, as I was just reading in one of my Psalms, uh, to start off my day, I was reading, uh, and, and it was talking about, oh, th this is just a mythological creature that he is describing here. And I said, wait a second, back the truth truck up. He says there that I formed Behemoth. It says in, in, in Isaiah 27, 1, it says, I created Leviathan. How did God create a mythological creature. He certainly did not. These were real creatures. And as we studied these and looked at them, it, the next group of people come along and because they want to believe the earth is very old and certainly no dinosaurs in our day and Job certainly did not see dinosaurs and describe them. Therefore, he was truly describing the behemoth would be the hippopotamus, uh, even though he has a tail like a cedar tree. That one was a tough one to get around. And then the, the leviathan is the crocodile even though this creature breathed fire very clearly. And so we really wrestled with present-day interpretations of these, and I think we came to the conclusion, we just need to take the Word of God very seriously. These creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, are listed among 10 other creatures in a previous chapter of Job 38, in which they were actual figures, creatures, animals, that you and I both would be able to recognize then why would he suddenly switch gears? And the descriptions here certainly would not fit a hippopotamus or an elephant or a whale or a crocodile. And then, uh, then that, this past week, we looked at sightings. And, you know, our minds can certainly play tricks on us. Uh, I imagine that we have turned quickly and seen what we thought was one thing and later described, oh my goodness, it certainly couldn't have been that. But these are sightings, and there's not just a few here and there scattered throughout history and cultures, but there are literally thousands of these. And I'm not just talking about Nessie in the Loch Ness in England, Britain. Uh, we're talking about, we looked at many cultures, and even Genesis Park, uh, which is one of the sources that I used, a very credible young earth creationist, Bible-believing conservative group who's into this kind of stuff, have done um, expeditions, and they have actually seen these creatures, and they have taken pictures of the what appeared to be pterodactyls, and there is something that they didn't make up. They heard about this. They took photos of it, that these pterodactyls actually are bioluminescent, meaning they glow in the dark, much as fireflies and, or lightning bugs. Um, 
and so, and I showed you a picture of that, and and so we conclude our little discussion of dinosaurs that way, um, and I hope that was interesting for you. But the, yes, the second half, we we realized that if we're going to talk about the age of the Earth, and again, the only reason why we were doing this is because there are serious implications that we need to grapple with whether we're going to lean in the direction of the earth is old or the earth is young. And we need to realize also that the majority of Christianity is buying into the science of our day, especially radiometric dating, which is filled with assumptions. We're buying into this, and many are believing this and willing to concede God created cancer and he called it good. And we realized if that is the case, then why was part of Jesus' mission, ministry, to heal that stuff? And so we looked into the Word of God, and, and the very first thing that we did was we looked at the implications of old earth creationism that I've already mentioned, and there's several others. Uh, and then the next week, we looked at the, from a, the, the scriptures from creation, we looked at numerous passages that are so clear in their teaching that the earth is young. We looked at the genealogies and discovered, as we really looked into them in depth, that there are no genealogical gaps in Genesis 5 or 11. And we discussed this. And, and we were walking away with this conclusion, wow, you know what? The, the Bible really seems to indicate that the earth truly is young. And so we looked at the globe, and we realized that there are many people, excuse me, the Noah's flood, and there are many who hold to the old earth teaching that the flood was merely local or that it was global but very tranquil. And there are certain indications from Scripture that this could not have been the case. Hugh Ross, uh, uh, probably the most well-known old earth creationist, uh, a conservative Christian, I don't doubt his salvation whatsoever, seems to be a reputable man. Um, he, he, he discusses his view of the local flood and many of the reasons why he, why he says that man was created around 60,000 A.D. is because of the Aborigines in Australia that, again, present-day science says are about that age, 40 to 60,000 years old. Now, again, they used their ways of measuring and, and such to be able to come to this determination, most of which is their view of the geologic column. The question then is, if a local flood happened during, uh, shortly after, you know, some years after Adam, then what about these Aborigines in Australia? They, they would have survived the flood. And Scripture is very clear that all life under heaven was destroyed. Um, then we looked at the... So the, the local flood, the tranquil flood, we realize that the language of especially Genesis 6 and 7 is clear. All the high mountains under the heavens were covered. All life was destroyed. We also saw that um, all kinds of animals were rescued and came to Noah. And the question is, if it was a local flood, then why would there even be a need for a park? Hey, Noah, just move. Pack up your stuff and move. And if God can bring all the animals to you there in the Mesopotamian River Basin, just move outside of that area and let God bring the animals to you there and have them rescue. Why build an ark? Why take so many years to do this? And it was a huge monstrosity. It was absolutely huge. Why put so much labor into that? 
when all you have to do is just move. Why have the birds of the air come to you? They could just fly away. It wasn't that, that the river basin is not that huge. They could easily fly out of the range of this local flood. And again, we come to this conclusion, how can that be? Mountains of the, excuse me, fountains, the fountains of the great deep refer to us to the sea and not a river basin. This could, this could not be a reference to the Mesopotamian river basin. And that says that they burst forth. The Hebrew there is talking about ripping open. This is violent. Uh, the, the global flood was anything but tranquil. And as a result of its devastation and destruction, it had to have left tremendous evidence behind. And, and we came to a very fair conclusion that that evidence had to have been the geologic column. Now, this past Wednesday, we looked at some scientific evidences. The first three, we looked at scripture. And then the last one, we looked at science. Um, and then what does science have to say? Now, we were very limited. There's so many other things that we could talk about to show that the Earth and the solar system truly is young. Uh, but we just focused on those things pertaining to the geologic column. And how could this have happened over hundreds of millions of years, rock being bent with no signs of what they call striation, the grains and the, the um, sediments being stretched, which would happen if it were under pressure and heat and slow bending. But it happened when those layers were pliable, much like if we were to build layer upon layer of Play-Doh and then bend them. And this is the type of thing that we see. Numerous evidences that we looked at. And the question, though, that I did not really ask and therefore answer, I want to do that today. And you're going to see uh, this question then is really going to open up a very serious question that I believe many in our world today, and even Christians wrestle with, and that is why did God send this flood? And he's very clear why he does this. It's not just that man, he got tired of man and he wanted something else and so he wiped them out. It's that there was a very serious problem. Now, if you were to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6, we're going to see the extent and the seriousness of this problem. And I'm only going to touch on it some because uh, as far as the word of God here, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. How, who were the sons of God going into the daughters of men? And I'm not going to touch on that. Uh, I have done that in the past, and that certainly does play into us understanding the severity of the sin that had truly corrupted every aspect of the world. Then I'm not going to touch on those first few verses. Instead, I'm going to have a start, right, or not even the, the Nephilim there in verse 4. We're going to start in verse 5, if that's okay with you. Starting with verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every, I want you to underline that word in your Bible, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I have in my Bible emphasis, uh, underlined several times every inclination. Um, only evil. All the time. And it goes on, he says, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created, including the aborigines in Australia. Everyone from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air. 
for I am grieved that I have made them. And I must conclude with verse 8, but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the scripture says the next verse that he walked with God. And so God realized that there was an infection, an incurable infection that had crept into the heart of man like a disease and it had perverted every inclination of his heart all the time. (coughs) And he said, there is only one cure for this. I've got to wipe out mankind. And so when we think about the flood, when we think about the reasons for the flood, the why question, we must realize that the flood was God's judgment upon man's sin. And this is a theme that runs through the word of God that we're going to look at that's going to lead us now as we are, this is Palm Sunday, as we are now heading into Passion Week, and they don't call it Passion Week, by the way, because it's so emotional, but they call it Passion Week because that means pain and and suffering, the suffering week of Christ. That's what this is about. That's what this week is. Um, Thursday night when he was betrayed, Friday hanging on the cross, and then Sunday, of course, his resurrection. But this concept of judgment runs throughout the word. And, And here in this chapter, we need to realize a few things. Number one, in, the, in what is it, verse, uh, excuse me, verse three, where he says, I won't, my spirit will not contend with man. I realize that's a difficult, in the Hebrew, it's a difficult passage to properly interpret. I get that. But the implication is not that man's life from now on will only be 120 years, because if that's the case, it didn't happen for about five or six or 700 years after the flood. But rather he's saying, mankind, you have 120 years before I wipe you out. You have 120 years, just so you know. And it was probably, as God spoke this to Noah, it was probably Noah preaching it to the people. I wouldn't doubt it was also Methuselah, his father Lamech. But both Methuselah and Lamech died before the flood came. As a matter of fact, the the name Methuselah, uh, some of you may have heard uh, one interpretation is that it means man of the dart or man of the spear. The only problem with that interpretation is that it takes the, this compound word Methuselah and it interprets the first part as literal and the second part as figurative, and that's just not a proper way to interpret a name. And so when you really get down to the etymology of it, it means when it comes, he shall die. When he comes, it shall die. That's a literal interpretation of that name. And then the question is, when it comes... He said, what is it? Now, if you do the math, you realize that Methuselah died the very year of the flood. Now, we also find out from Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he went around preaching and proclaiming 120 years, just like those people who hold the signs in the comic strips, the end is near. That's pretty much what Noah, the end is near. The end is near, except he probably didn't hold up a sign and say the end is near. He was building an ark. What a what a uh, an opportunity! Uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 
something that, uh, that, that you're, you're doing that opens up an opportunity to share the gospel. Um, yeah, it's not coming to me, but anyway, it is, it is a symbol. He's working on this ark, and no doubt people are saying, dude, what are you doing building a huge boat when the river is that far away, and you think that's going to float on that river? Are you joking? And why is it so huge? Wow, is that a, that, that is some sort of yacht. Oh my goodness. And, and just a conversation starter for them. But he proclaimed repentance. And the evil in the world had become so great, the offer was given, anyone who would repent, come aboard. But the truth is, nobody repented. The only ones who were saved, and we even find this, by the way, in flood legends throughout cultures, eight people were rescued on board that ark. And the truth is that God had to destroy everyone. No one repented. No one turned back to God. Their hearts were so inclined to evils. They were so addicted to their sin. They could not break free from it. And <clears throat> consequently, none of them repented and none of them were rescued. Church, we have never, ever seen a lack of response to the gospel or the proclamation of the word ever in the history of the world. That is how severe man's sin was. It had so clouded the way they thought. I want you now, if you would, to turn to Matthew 24. As I say, the, the flood has become a, a symbol, an example of God's judgment upon sin. I don't know if we're ever going to find Noah's Ark. There have been reports of it. Uh, and some of them, as you do some sort of research on them, they do seem to be credible. Josephus himself refers to the Ark, and he apparently had seen it when he refers to it. He, he talks about it if it's a thing that's there that he and others have seen on top of Mount Ararat. Others have done the same in history. And then, of course, there's other more recent than the last century or two sightings of the Ark. Um, however, it is a very um, distant place, hard to get to, generally covered with snow. And so the opportunity, if it's there, <clears throat> um, I think the last report, someone actually said it was broken in half and one part had slid further away from the other. Regardless, can you imagine if the world did find that ark on top of the mountain? What would that communicate to the world? I'll tell you what it would communicate. Number one, why would some guy build such a large boat unless God who knew the future spoke to him and said, I'm going to wipe out mankind? I, I, I can't imagine any other answer why there's this huge boat on top of a mountain. Now, I bring this up because even the world would come to the same conclusion the Scripture comes, God's judgment. God's judgment. God said that he would have to destroy the world, and for this reason, 
there was a provision made. We're going to talk about that provision. But I want us to look then at Matthew 24, because I say this, this, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the global flood, Noah's flood, has become a, a symbol and an example of God's judgment. As a matter of fact, what's uh, somewhat interesting is that Noah's flood, I mean, that word flood that's used for Noah's flood, um, in both Old Testament and New Testament, whenever an author is referring to it, there is one specific word in the Old Testament, mabul, that's used for that. There are other Hebrew words for flood that are used in the Old Testament, but whenever an author is referring to Noah's flood, it's called mabul. In the New Testament, same thing. The flood rose, Luke 6, Sermon on the Mount. One man, wise man built his house on the rock. His foolish man built his house on the sand. The rains came down and the flood came up. You sing that song. Don't start singing it now, please. But the flood came up, and that word flood, it, it's not the word that's generally used in the New Testament for Noah's flood. That word is cataclysmos. What word do we get from, what English word do we get from that? Cataclysm. Cataclysm. How, how is that anything tranquil? It's a cataclysm. That means vast destruction. And so we get this idea of, and we're, we come across this, I'm not going to transliterate it or translate it, but uh, the, we get this idea of cataclysm, even from this passage, and it's used in this passage, from what Jesus is saying. And in Matthew 24, he is actually talking about when he comes again. And he, and he uses Noah's flood as an example of his judgment on the day that the Son of Man comes again. So follow with me, Matthew 24, starting with verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it, is, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding hand at the, with a hand mill, one will be taken, and the other left. And he says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. So even when Jesus is saying, guys, when I'm going to come back, something is going to happen that is cataclysmic. Let me give you an example. Do you remember the days of Noah? Everyone was kind of just doing what they do. They were, they were planting and they were reaping. They were marrying and giving into marriage. They were eating. They were drinking. Life went on when suddenly, it's not unexpectedly because Noah warned them, but they lived life as if there were no consequences at all to sin. And then the flood came, and it says, destroyed them. And it says right there, if you follow, it says, took them all away. Can I ask, who is them in that verse? Who is them? How did the flood take them all away? It destroyed them. The them are not those in the ark, those outside of the ark. 
And so the picture here is not one of rescuing. Unfortunately, it's one of destruction. And that's why Jesus says, watch. And then he goes on and he says that two will be in the field and one will be taken. Just like during the flood, those who were taken away weren't the ones who were rescued. They were the ones who were destroyed. When two are in the field, the one that's taken is the one that's destroyed. Now, I realized that when I was a young kid, I'll be honest with you, I really got into Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, and the rapture, and this kind of stuff. And, and I realized as I was studying this, that this was a very common passage that was used. You know, when Jesus comes, he's going to take those seven years before he, before he really comes, and he's going to do it seven years before that, and it was called a secret rapture. The, the problem, though, is that this can't speak of a secret rapture because those who are taken are not those who are rescued. Those who are taken are those who are destroyed. Two women will be grinding with a millstone and one will be taken or she will be destroyed. And so I want us to pause here for just a moment, not, not to think about the rapture and so on. I, when Jesus comes back, that's it, church. There, there is no seven-year prelude, you preview of what's going to happen. He is going to come back like a thief in the night. Not that it will happen at night. Have, have you ever seen those movies when Jesus comes back, it happens at night? My question was, well, what about the people on the other side of the world? <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's, it's not night. <laughs> Surprise, I'm here. But Jesus is going to come suddenly, and that's the idea. People in our day are going to live life as if sin doesn't matter, as if their offense with God means nothing, and that they can continue life and making money and being happy, or at least trying, and life will go on, and Jesus is saying, it ain't so. It will come unexpectedly. And therefore, I'm calling you, watch. And I can tell you this right now, even Christians, we can become lazy in our walk. But here's what, here's what I want us to think about. I would venture to say that every single one of us, we have fears about our future. And for many of you sitting here this morning, there is a fear that maybe, just maybe, God won't forgive me. That maybe, just maybe, he will judge you in the last day. Or maybe you, you feel fairly confident that you'll make it and you're going to make it to heaven, but you wrestle regularly with fears of God's punishment. With this fear and, and this weight, really, of guilt. I'm going to tell you, if your guilt from your sin remains, you will have fear of God's punishment. You will. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But I would venture to say that many Christians today wrestle in a very serious way with guilt. When we were on our trip to Italy, um, I love the way Jenny Rose shared it this, I, this, uh, this past Friday. Um, but when we were in Italy, they told a story of the Jubilee Doors. 
Now, Jubilee, according to the Old Testament, is a year in which all debts were canceled. All debts. If you owed somebody money, the debt was canceled. If you were a slave, and by the way, slaves then were only to pay off debts. Um, you could not be a slave against your will. You sold yourself into slavery. Um, or the creditors took you until you had paid off what you owed them. But that's what slavery was. So slavery, once the debt was paid off, you were no longer a slave. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, and therefore all slaves were released. Debts canceled. Now, in the Catholic Church, they came up with the idea of debts being canceled this year of Jubilee, and it happens every 50 years, according even to the Old Testament, every 50 years. But here's what they would say. You know, apparently the new pope came in and he said, why should we wait for the people? Why should we have the people wait 50 years for their sins to be forgiven? Let's do a, a grand opening. Let's just do it 25 years. And so this idea of a pilgrimage, people coming and being able to see, did they have to do something with the doors? I'm sorry, I, I can't remember at this point. Um, I'm sorry? Walk through the doors. There we go. Walk through the doors and your sins will be forgiven. And the Pope was thinking, well, why wait 50 years? Let's step it up. Let's do it 25. And he was considered this gracious Pope. Now, I, I'm not sure exactly what's communicated because I do realize that sometimes when you're talking about a symbol and you're talking about the reality, sometimes we get them confused. This is certainly a symbol, but how is it that walking through these doors of Jubilee will forgive you of your sins? And I tell you, here is why, church, and this is what we need to really sink our teeth in, is because today even Christians do not understand the extent and the power of the cross. We walk around with guilt, and the reality is we fail to grasp the, 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 the truth of this very simple concept of the cross. And because of this, you know, when we were there, well, because of this, wow, if I walk through the doors of Jubilee, I will be forgiven. Wait, 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 wait a second, what about the cross? Do you, is, is it the cross plus the doors of Jubilee? Plus, oh, there's the one, you, you got to wipe the feet of Mary. You wipe the feet of Mary. And the one particular foot, you know, I, get, I think her feet are crossed somehow. And they would, uh, there was a whole line, wipe their feet across Mary. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. And as people, they would touch the feet of Mary and their sins would be forgiven. And, and the truth is, we, we do this, and I'm not saying that there's something wrong with sin, Symbols, though I have a problem with Mary's foot, but the truth is the cross, I mean, we could, we could touch a cross, okay? But that in itself does not forgive myself. Here is the reality, church. And we laugh, but in our own way, we do the very same thing. How many of you have said, dear Jesus, wow, what I did yesterday and how I backtalked to my mom. That was so wrong. Please forgive me. Three hours later, it comes back to your mind and you find yourself, Jesus, please forgive me for that, how I backtalked with my... Now, us parents were thinking, yes, I love that prayer. But for the child, okay, they're wrestling with guilt. And the very next morning, they wake up in the morning and they just feel this weight of guilt and they're saying, Jesus, please forgive me. It's as if if I beg enough, then I'll be forgiven. Have you ever been down that down that road before? And we forget 
the power of the cross. Wow. The power of the cross. When we go through a crisis, I hope I'm not stepping on anyone's toes here, but maybe you know someone that this could apply to. There we go. And you go through a crisis, and the first thing you want to do, let me go back to church. And you have to pause, and I'm going to challenge you, pause. Why would you do that? Why would this crisis cause you to go back to church? Now, I hope it would be because I want to start afresh in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know this Savior who died on the cross for my sins, and I want to walk with him again. But here's the reality. Many times people go back to church because they want something from God. Maybe if I go back to church, God will smile on me, and whatever I'm needing, he's going to give me. Many, many years ago, this there was a person uh, that I knew pretty well. And he'd been a part of Powerline a couple of years. His marriage kept crashed and burned. And they, 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 they weren't going to Powerline for several years. And then one day, he, she, this, the, the husband shows up. And the husband had uh, been wrestling with some addictions. And, and he shows up, and his marriage is on the rocks. And he wants to get right with God. And I say, great. As soon as he got word, that the marriage was not going to work. I never saw him again. He'd come to church because he was hoping that if he went to church, God would smile upon him and grant him his request to rescue his marriage. I tried reaching out to him, calling. No way that I could get a hold of him. And so we, as Christians, even as Christians, we can kind of bring God to the barter table and make a deal. Okay, God, if you come this far, I'll come this far. And we cut a deal with God. And the problem is when we come this far, at least we think we've come that far, and God doesn't give me what I want, what is up with this, God? You know, I've done my part. Why isn't my marriage rescued? Why haven't you come through? I don't have a job yet. Why, why, is, why is my child, my child still addicted to drugs? God, I'm crying out to you, and you're not answering. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why aren't you? And see, we are trying so hard to earn his forgiveness and his favor. How different are we from those who are rubbing Mary's foot, walking through the doors of Jubilee? Not too far, not too far different. And the bottom line is, church, we need to understand the cross. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 19. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but there are seven things called the seven last words of Christ. I'm going to read one of them to you. <laughs> John tells us that Jesus said this right before he died. Technically, the very last words of Jesus were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But if you were to read through the four different gospels and piece the timing of these seven last words, the one I'm going to read to you is the second to the last, number six. <clears throat> and, and the premise of this is that a man's last words are some of his most important words. And so sermons have been preached on, I've actually done that myself, looking at these phrases. And this one right here is found 
in John 19, verse 30. It says, when he had received, he'd asked, he says, I am thirsty. That was word number five. And they give him wine vinegar. In verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Can you say that, church, with me? It is finished. Now, this is one Greek word. It's tetelestai. Don't ask me to spell that for you. Not sure I know how. I can barely pronounce it. Tetelestai. And, and it, it's one Greek word, and it means it is completed. It's done. It is finished. And my question is, church, think about that. What is finished? What is finally accomplished that Jesus was even going to the cross for? Was it not the forgiveness of your sins or the payment needed for your sins to be forgiven. You see, many people, they have this view of forgiveness as if God just waves this spiritual magic wand and you're forgiven. You know what? I mean, and, and, and if you just ask him to forgive, well, yeah, he's just going to wave this magic wand and God can just forgive anybody. And I'm not saying that he can't, but understand this. There is nothing that you can do to earn that forgiveness. It is completely alien your works completely alien to this concept of God's forgiveness. Why? Because just like there are physical laws, like the law of gravity, if you drop something up high, it's going to fall. Just make sure it doesn't land on your toe, right? Just, okay, gra- that's the concept. That's the law of gravity. There are spiritual laws as well, one of which is sin must be paid for. There are no exceptions ever. God cannot just wink at sin and, ah, that's okay. I'll turn my back on that one. Go ahead. You know, God doesn't do that. He can't do it because sin is an offense to his holiness and it must be paid for. It must be punished. With sin, you see, church, there must be judgment. God just can't pretend it away, the sin. If we were to look at Hebrews 9, turn there with me because there's a few verses in Hebrews we're going to look at as we kind of wrap up this concept of the cross. But in Hebrews 9, the book of Hebrews, by the way, it's not the easiest book in the world to read, but I tell you what, if you want to learn about the extent and the power of the cross and who Jesus really is and what he accomplished. Read this book. Powerful. And it's then when you move into chapter 10, which we're going to do a bit of, it just begins to blow your mind. Wow. Because church, we, we, we truly do not understand the ramifications of our sin and that God just can't, pretended away. He had to do something because there's this spiritual law in effect that is a part of who he is and his nature of holiness. And it says here in chapter 9, verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why the shedding of blood? Because here is the principle, life for life. The wages of sin is death. Because Mike Curtis sinned, he deserves to die. 
He doesn't just deserve a spanking. He doesn't just deserve some little lame punishment. No, Mike Curtis deserves to die. What, God, just for a white lie? Which, by the way, God does not understand that phrase, white lie. Sin is sin, okay? Just call it what it is. A spade is a spade is sin. White lie, okay, that's a, that's, that's a lie. That's sin. And yes, because of that, Mike Curtis deserves to die. And so the shedding of blood means that someone else's or something's life was taken in my stead. Now, in the Old Testament, animals, their lives were taken. Their blood was shed. And they actually went through certain rituals that, I'll put it this way, prefigured what Christ would do. They gave us a picture, and as we say, a picture's worth a thousand words. And we have many pictures like this. Another term that's used actually in chapter 10, verse 1, is shadows. But these are little shadows or pictures of what's to come in Christ. Now, if we were to look at chapter 10, verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, it says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible. I'm sorry, that was verse 3, wasn't it? Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal's shed blood could never take away your sins. It was never meant to. It was all a looking ahead to the cross of Christ. And so finally, in chapter 10, we come to this verse 10, and it says, By that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all time, once for all people, and once for all your sins. He didn't just die for the sins that you would commit up until the day you gave your heart to Christ, walked an aisle, were baptized in water or anything else, and then you got to pay for the rest of your sins. All of your sins were paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ, by the shedding of blood. Other than the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and Jesus' blood was shed for us. There's nothing I can do, including rubbing Mary's feet, that's going to ever grant me for forgive, grant me forgiveness. Nothing. I don't care how many times I pray. I don't care how many times I uh, pray through the rosary beads or pray the, the, the Lord's Prayer. None of that. And by the way, Jesus calls that babbling. When we do that over and over to bring about some favor of God. That's what pagans do, he says. No, we don't, we don't need to do this. I look to the cross because the cross, as the song says, has the final word. There is nothing that I can do. There is nothing. I can't pray hard enough. My heart needs to be surrendered to him, period. Mike Curtis, when his heart is surrendered, is saying, Jesus, I am dead. I no longer live. I need you to live in me. And we, when we recognize that we are spiritually dead and then surrender to the God who created us, at that point, he looks to the cross and he says, yes, now I can forgive your sins. He didn't just look away and say, ah, yeah, no big deal, Mike. It was just a white lie. 
No, Mike, your white lie, my son Jesus paid for that. For all time, for all people who would look to him, and for all sin that you would ever commit. And so because of this, he concludes in, in verse 19, therefore, therefore, this is the conclusion, brothers, therefore, because of all of this, because of the very fact that these lames sorry, lame sacrifices, all they could do is remind you of what a sinner you are. They could never take away, they could never wash away your sin. And now that Christ has come, therefore, because of that, since we have, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, which, by the way, only high priests could do, and at that once a year, and with a rope tied around him, because if he did something wrong, out of sync with, because he's, what he's doing, he is painting a picture of what Christ would do, and that was absolutely sacred, holy. Make sure you do it according to my will, God says. But if he didn't, he could actually be struck down dead. That's how serious this was. The high priest was painting a picture of Jesus. Once a year, into the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. But we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus in a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that separated the holy place, excuse me, the most holy place from the holy place. Holy place is what, where man could be and where priests could minister. The most holy place, that was the throne room of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And he sat, it says, enthroned between the cherubim on that Ark of the Covenant. And his presence was there in a very manifest way. And for that reason, the high priest, only once a year, with blood, could go back there. And make sure you do it right. Jesus, church, Jesus did it right. Jesus did it right. He didn't need a rope when he went into the Holy of Holies. He did it right. He sacrificed his blood for all time. And because of this, we can enter boldly into the holy place through this curtain, which is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he says, draw near to him. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a what? Guilty, that thing that you wrestle with when you stumble into sin, that, that guilty conscience. No more. No more. Now, I'm not saying that he's not saying when you sin, you shouldn't feel guilty like I did it, but you shouldn't feel guilty as in I am now condemned. See, there's two understandings of guilt here. When I feel guilty, I feel remorseful because I did something wrong or I feel condemned and judged. And it is that guilty conscience that the author of Hebrews is saying, not anymore, not anymore. And for that reason, we can draw near to God and have this guilty conscience cleansed and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, there's so much more here. The cross is the answer to this. Now, I'm going to conclude with just this one last verse, and it's in 1 John. In chapter 4, he says in 1 John 4, he says, 
in verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. He says, then there is no fear in love. That's kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. You see, when you are wrestling with this guilt, when you are wrestling with this condemnation, when you are wrestling with this fear of God's punishment, of God's eventual judgment, you are losing focus of the power of the cross, which is a picture of God, of a demonstration of God's love for you. And so, put simply, John is saying, when you are apprehended by this truth of God's love and it dwells in you, you cannot help but live in that love. It is a cause and effect. You cannot help it. Because God loves me and he has shown me this love in the, in the cross and it has forever changed me. I now want to follow Jesus. And though I was ruined at one point, I have been reconstructed, if you will. I've become a new creation and I'm following Jesus. And his point is this, the more you walk in that love, your love will be complete. And this guilt that you feel, it's going to fade away because you have learned to fall in love with Jesus. You have learned to be consumed by His love. And when you walk in that love and you're transformed in that love and you're constantly taking the truths of the cross and you're allowing it to impact you and live through you, it changes you and it breeds such a confidence in God's love and what He demonstrated on the cross You've experienced that truth. And this nagging guilt, it goes away. And for some of you, you you have walked for years in this truth. And it has brought so much freedom. Do you want the answer to that guilt that nags at you? Look at the cross. Let it impact you. And live through you. And the more you grasp that love and the concept of the cross, that guilt will fade away. And I'm just going to close with this right here. It's a, it's, it's a picture. It's a book that I thought was so cool when we were in Italy. And, and I'm just going to show you this. I'm gonna, you can see the, the picture of these ruins. And it is very close to the Colosseum. It's, it's kind of like the mall of D.C., you know what I'm talking about? You can fit like a million people in the mall in Washington, D.C. But this is in ruins. And the reason why it's in ruins is because the church took the Roman uh, buildings and they didn't tear it down because it was, many of them were temples to mythological gods, uh, Greek gods, but because they needed the pillars, they needed the stone, they needed the marble flooring for their churches. And so they, they robbed them. They... Um, Recycled, thank you, that's the word. Now, let me show you what it probably looked like. Now, the reason why they probably know that it looks like this is because they have found bits and pieces. The, the two pages look totally different, don't they? 
But the reason why they know that it probably looks this way is because they have found bits and pieces of the capitals above the pillars. And, and they, there are some pillars that you saw in the previous picture. There are some pillars that are still standing. And they can see foundations of buildings. And the reason why I'm showing you this is because many of us as Christians, we are living our lives as if this is the picture of what your life looks like. Now, maybe for some of you who don't know Christ, this is accurate, and your life is a ruins like this. But you see, Jesus, the very reason he went to the cross is because he is into reconstruction. Now, I realize I'm putting this backwards because this right here actually is a picture of what it used to be, and this is what it looks like today. But for you as a Christian, this is what you used to be like, and now this is what you have become. This is where he wants you to live. He wants you to live in the renewal of this life. And for some of us, and we're going to close in prayer right now, that is exactly what you need. You need freedom from this guilt that harangues you, this fear of judgment and punishment. And oh my goodness, when is the next, when's the other shoe going to drop? And you need to be refreshed and renewed by the power of God's word. The power of the cross. So can you stand with me right now? I believe some of you are in need of this renewal, and we're going to pray that. And I want you, if you want to kneel where you are, if you want to kneel at the altar, wherever you are, there is no foot of Mary to rub, by the way, but you can find that assurance of his forgiveness in the cross, in Jesus himself. So, Father, I want to thank you for the power of the cross. Before we met you, God, we truly were in ruins. We were without God, and we were without hope, in this world. Jesus, by the shedding of your blood, and only by the shedding of your blood, I now find forgiveness. Father, would you allow each and every one of us this renewal, this reminder again of what you have accomplished for me by your grace, I didn't have to earn it. I didn't have to walk through any doors of jubilee. The cross paid it all. And it was such a high cost. But Jesus, you were willing to pay that price. And you paid it for me. Miserable, ruined Mike Curtis. You paid it for me. And I just ask for every one of us, God, bring us back to the cross this morning. And the price that your son Jesus paid for me so that you can forgive me of my sins. You can cancel the debt I owe you. Gone forever for all time. Jesus, would you renew our spirit?